Welcome to The Deep Dive. I'm your host, Philip McKenzie. I'm an anthropologist strategist with a focus on culture and humanity-centered design. I'm Brooklyn-born and Brooklyn-made. Every week, I will bring you guests from a wide variety of backgrounds who, despite their different areas of expertise, share traits in common. They aim high, push boundaries, and make things happen. Their experiences drive insights. On today's episode of The Deep Dive, I'm joined by Orlando Wood. Orlando is Chief Innovation Officer of the System One Group, Honorary Fellow of the IPA, and the author of Lemon and Lookout. His research is a unique combination of neuroscience, cultural history, and advertising research, which describes and explains a change in creative style that has occurred in today's technologically disrupted world, one that has undermined advertising effectiveness. Importantly, Orlando's work also provides evidence and guidance to show how we might reverse this. It's a pleasure for me to be joined on the deep dive by Orlando Wood. How are you, man? I'm very well, thanks, Phil. Great to be back. Thanks for having me. Yeah, this is actually our our second time recording. Uh, when I was starting the show, so just like two years ago, I talked to you when you were promoting and talking about Lemon. That's right. And now we're doing a, a sequel. Look <laughs> That's out. right. You you could call it a sequel. Yes, a sister publication, perhaps. Uh, look out. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And, you know, I really love the title because we're going to get into the explanation of the title and and why you chose Look Out as a way to kind of introduce these ideas. But it also made me think of um, Jordan Peele, very famous director. He made Get Out, most famously. <laughs> he made Us. And he has a new movie coming out this this summer. But Look Out has this Jordan Peele sort of yes. nuance to it, right? Yeah, like it we does. should be aware of this, right? So why don't we start there with the title of the book? Yeah, the title. Well, well of course, it kind of works on two levels. I mean, look, this book is all about attention and the kind of attention that we pay to the world, what happens when it changes, and you know, partly the dangers that that change in attention, that shift in attention can bring. It's also about advertising, of course, and attention. And so the book really is, the title is both a kind of warning, look out, but it's also a plea, really, for people to look up and out and around them, um, at the world around them, for reasons I'll come on to explain in a minute. But yeah, it's all—it's sort of those two things. It's a way of introducing a way of talking about attention and what I call broad beam attention in the book, this broad beam, vigilant, alert, sustained attention that the world is in desperate need of that I think it's been losing in recent years. Let's continue on that, that theme and go into the idea of, of broad beam yeah. attention, right? Because often we hear we're in a, in a moment of attention deficit, right? Like that's a, a term that's been bandied about. It's, it's also actually a, a disorder that, that people suffer from. So how did we get into this state of lacking um, what you would term broad beam attention and, and also define that for us? Yeah, of course. So when um, I start uh, the first chapter of the book, I start to talk about the nature of attention. Because it's important to understand what attention really is. You know, attention is a way of disposing our consciousness. And um, so how do we how do we do it? Well, I study the work of Ian McGilchrist again, as I did in Lemon and others too. But 
he talks about there being, broadly speaking, two types of attention. One is called broad beam attention, which comes first. And then you've got this sort of narrow beam attention, which comes second once broad beam attention's, you know, sort of done its job. And uh, under broad beam attention, we might describe various types of um, attention, alertness and sustained attention, which, you know, uh, alert us to what's out there at the edge of, uh, you know, of our awareness, vigilance too. And, and they also ground us in the world and the people in it. So you've sort of got these three types of attention, alertness, vigilance, sustained attention, and also a divided attention, which these sort of four types of attention are dealt with primarily by the right hemisphere of the brain, which presents the world to us. And uh, we always have this sort of global or broad picture of what's going on first. You know, so in the book, I use in fact one of Gilchrist's examples, which is like a kind of an H4 made up of little E's and little 8's. But you see the H4 first because that's the big sort of picture. And then you see the E's and the 8's when you look in detail. That's because, you know, we see the wood before we see the trees. So we see have this broad beam attention first. The right brain passes anything of interest to the left brain for it to kind of unpack and, and look at in, in, in more detail at you know, its narrow beam attention. What I show and what I describe in the book is how in the last 15 years, probably five in particular, you know, I think there's increasing evidence of our attention getting very narrow and we're losing this kind of broad beam connection with the world and the people in it. And we're bringing a, a ever more narrow beam attention to what we do. And I think it's largely a result of the you know, the digital world and the kind of very narrow close-up focus that it, it causes us to bring to bear on things. And, you know, when you think we spend three hours a day on average on our mobile devices, you know, really close-up, goal-orientated sort of attention, seeking and reward, that are these things that are built into the, the world today, the internet and all of its platforms, and that's that's causing causing problems because when you when you get this very narrow beam attention starting to dominate, in other words, patterns of thinking, habits of thinking that are associated with the left hemisphere of the brain, people start to feel a bit detached from the world around because you know they're not the right brain's not passing them things in the way that we're used to. You get this sort of sense of a loss of vitality in in culture, and you also get this kind of adversarial stance starting to emerge. Some of the antisocial, I suppose, aspects of the left hemisphere come to the fore. Anger, you know, literalness, very uh, rigid ways of thinking, inability to, to see anything in, say, the, the truth in two opposite statements. Both might be true, you know, to the right brain. So th this sort of um, rigidity starts to come through in culture. And I, and I trace in the book, you know, two two periods in history where this has happened in the past following technological leaps. And uh, well, perhaps we can talk about that in a minute. I'll, I'll pause there for a moment. That's perfect because I, I think this idea or, or this notion of, of holding conflicting or complex ideas at the same time is, is really important. And I want to spend a little bit of time on that because as I was reading the book, 
the one thing I started to think about is how as much as you're telling a, a advertising story, right, that this is a story that actually very much encapsulates more than just advertising. Like it, it lives in other parts of our world and has other connections, some stronger, some some weaker, but it's still there. And it and it made me think about and, and I was actually jotting down some notes as you were as you were um, giving your your last response that it seems like we're in a push pull between being general in our in the way we look at the world and specialization in in how we focus when i think about like our career path. So my my first question cuz i had originally like is specialization an issue, you know, and this idea that you know if all you have is a hammer everything looks like a nail. Right? right. Yeah. In in terms of advertising, right? But i, I want to actually hold on that for a minute and get a, a better sense of do you think specialization and attention are different? I think that this kind of narrow beam attention that the left brain is so good at and prizes brings with it this sort of desire to, to to get ever narrower, you know, kind of reductionism, narrower science, a lot of science, not all science, and science shouldn't necessarily be this way, but a lot of it is sort of breaking things down into smaller parts, you know, getting closer up to something. And that's that's the, that specialization, because specialization also, you know, if you put people into specialized roles, you know, then you and you can still maintain a sense of the whole. You can you can get people to create something that, that replicates things, you know, which is also a left brain specialism desire for replication and repeatability which is at the heart of manufacturing. So, you know, specialization and breaking things down into component parts, all of these things are to do with the left brain and the type of attention that the left brain brings to bear on things, as opposed to that kind of broad beam attention that connects us with people and those around and, and the world around. So it's a bit it's a bit of a, you know, actually, as Ian McGilchrist says in his new book, attention is a profoundly moral act, because, you know, narrow beam attention, which is really to do with grasping things, uh, manipulating things, manipulating the world with, you know, that kind of grasping attention is very different from the sort of broad beam attention that ensures that we're present and with others and in the world and understand, you know, what's going on around us. You know, one is designed to broad beam attention is designed to understand and that that kind of narrow beam attention is, des is designed to apprehend or manipulate or control or exploit you know and that's um that's the think the nature of the the two the two types of attention broad and narrow and um, we kind of we do kind of need both obviously when we veer towards one more than the other then we start to get ourselves in trouble you know because i i think when i'm just interacting in the world as, as someone doing consulting work, right? I come across a lot of different people. And then, you know, we use the imperfect world of LinkedIn, another source of, of um, kind of charting our career paths. And I, and I spend a, quite a bit of time there. And I, I always joke around somewhat facetiously, but I did kind of think about this in the terms of our conversations that I've noticed even in the past, like you said, 10, 15 years, even job titles have gotten incredibly specific. Yeah. Right. Where someone will have a role where I'm like, so what do you do? Like in, in a, in a weird way, the more specific the job title has become, the more confused I'm a, I am about what they yes. actually do for a job. Yes. <laughs> well, I mean, that's a new technology introduce, introduces all sorts of new 
roles and, and possibilities, doesn't it? But you're you're right, it does. You get this kind of well, what what exactly is that? Have we lost the broader picture here? You know, what's the how does this fit into the broader world? You know, are we have we become too narrow in our thinking? And you know, the, the, with with this change in attention, I think comes this sort of uh, splintered or fragmented attention, you know, that we're trying to, to do lots of things at once. And that really, if you're going to be creative, if you're going to bring any kind of creative project to fruition, you need, you know, a sort of constant sustained attention, kind of get into a flow uh, and you're fragmenting, you know, you kind of, you can't really do what you, you need to be doing. And it's not very enjoyable either. And that's why I was trying to wrestle with the specialization and generalist concept, right? Mm. Because one thinks that in order to like really know something, you need to, again, narrow your focus, right? You hear that a lot in college, right? Like pick your major, narrow your focus, mm -hmm. decide mm -hmm. what you want to do. And it, and it seems like the type of complexity that you are describing in the book and that we are wrestling with as a society or as, you know, connected societies requires like more of a generalist approach to a, a certain extent. Like, is it useful for you to be working in advertising and be focused on UX ad sales, you know, or to be generally a, a person interested in many things and then be able to channel those toward better advertising? Well, I, right? I think, I think any, anyone who's read my, either of my books will probably know that I think that generalism or at least interest in many things is important i think it's david epstein talks about in his book range you know the importance of range in a modern world you start to interrogate the world in lots of different ways and look at many different subjects and give yourself time to really immerse yourself in those things but then bring them together create you know the synthesis bringing together of things create something new and a new perspective and and uh and an interesting perspective, hopefully, and, and, a, and a more enlightened one. So I think, you know, I mean, John Hegarty talks about great, Sir John Hegarty, I should say, he talks about the importance of looking at things just outside where you are, look at things beyond what you're doing, because that's how you, you, you can bring them into what you do. And that's how you create something interesting. And that's what, you know, great advertising can and should do. And, you know, I want to spend a little bit of time going more into this left-right divide, you know, because it's a, it's a very popular one that's used in any variety of ways, right? Like, I, I remember, like, taking personality tests with my first few jobs out of college, and we kind of had this left-brain, right-brain breakdown and all these different things. So I think there's a, there's a high-minded way to think about this stuff, and then there's sort of like the pop culture way. Pop science. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> pop science is the, perf is the perfect term. But I, I, I think it's worth interrogating that more because a lot of the, the research that has that is in Lookout kind of discusses how this works in advertising. So but before we get to advertising, what, what I started to think about in the same way that you know, you refer often to McGill, Chris, as one of like your folks. I have a similar, I have a few similar people, but like Leonard Schlein is one of those folks oh, yes. for me yes. that has done like, before, yeah. yeah, that has done a lot of work on this. And so I want to A, give a, a shout out to the, to Leonard Schlein and his legacy. But, you know, he, he talks about this and others have talked about this as more of a 
masculine feminine divide as well, being the right being more attuned to feminine values and the left being more attuned to masculine values. And these are not gender terms. These are more terms of how we think about different value constructs. So I wanted to explore that a little bit. Like, did you come across that sort of thinking and to what degree do you think our preponderance of this sort of left brain thinking is also due to the overwhelming nature of these industries being very male slash masculine dominated? Because my my Wall Street background is very similar. So yeah, I think there's a Ian McGilchrist doesn't go into great detail on this in the master and his emissary. But there's a I don't think it's as clear cut as you as you sort of portray it. I know you're only kind of characterizing it. You know, we we both both men and women have this. Um, you know, uh, uh, <laughs> have both brains, and you know, there's a there's a. In fact, it, when I looked at this in advertising terms, in look out, you know, because I provide some data on this. Is it is it that you know uh, this kind of right-brained advertising, as I call it, which is full of people, empathy, knowing glances, you know, music. Um, things happening in live time, all of that, that kind of thing. Is it that that connects better with women or men? And that, you know, we're, we're only talking about one, one gender here. And it's, um, and it's not the case. I mean, they both, you know, across both men and women, you know, this, these advertising with these right brain features tends to connect better than advertising that's very left brain dominant. If anything, it connected marginally better with men than it did with women. So that, I mean, that was quite a counterintuitive finding, though not really that much difference between them. And also uh, between, you know, young and old, uh, you get this, um, it's the right right brain advertising that connects with both young and old, in fact, slightly better amongst the young than the old. And perhaps another counterintuitive finding that many people assume that this is, you know, something that won't work with younger audiences who are time pressured and everything else and have a different way perhaps of consuming media is the narrative. But no, not doesn't seem to be the case. So I'd say that, you know, this this I mean it's what makes us all human essentially, you know, this sort of right hemisphere. I understand the sort of stereotypical kind of characterization of men and women, but I don't think it really holds, you know. And actually what I what I what I'm offering there is not that men and women see things differently. I actually agree with you mm. on on that perspective, which is why I wanted to make it clear that masculine and feminine to me are not the gendered ways in which we're thinking about them or commonly would think about them, particularly when you're doing demographic work, right? Like men 18 to 34 like this and women, you know, 18 to 34 like that. Like that, I'm not, that's not my, where I'm going is that these ideas have values attached to them, right? Like when we list what are commonly thought of as feminine values, they tend to link to what we would say are right brain attributes and vice versa with left brain tend to link toward masculine values, right? So if we're living in societies and and industries that are favoring those value constructs, you know, more, more narrow, more authority, versus more emotion and compassion, are we going to end up in getting into these virtual loops where we're replicating those type of value systems at the end, 
right? Fra- frankly, we need both. We need both, you know, types of ways of thinking. You need this broad and you need this narrow. And if 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 it becomes out of kilter, you know, then you you, you get into trouble. And uh, I wouldn't necessarily say that one is 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 you know is associated with one gender's values more than the other but i can kind of see where you're coming from i just think we need we need to sort of understand how this type of thinking manifests itself and be sensitive to it and understand you know because it, actually the way that you look at the world through these different types of attention has a massive bearing on the kind of world that we're creating around us and so we've got to you know got to be conscious of that and in fact in ian mcgilchrist's new book the matter with things he sort of goes on to try and explain this sort of uh, the left brain as as you know what kind of world is it that we're in if we're in a left brain world and what does it mean you know and uh actually perhaps we should be thinking more about about a, a more balanced uh, world and you know i think that gives us a, a chance to think about the price that we're paying for this inward look, right? Which you spend quite a bit of time out, which is why the the book serves as warning that we should spend more time looking out, Yeah, right? So there is a, a real price being paid as we turn inwards. And, uh, you know, I want to give you an opportunity to kind of illustrate like why why that is so significant, particularly when it, when it speaks to advertising. Right? Yeah. That, that gives us a, a very good snapshot of how we view the world. So this stuff is very important. Yeah. So th- so in the book, I talk about two periods of history other than our own, where you know, culture has kind of turned inwards. Now, the left brain is when when the right brain's not sort of passing things to us as it should, you know, when it's when we're not connected with the world around, we become very narrow in our focus. We, uh, you know, the left brain is like a hall of mirrors and it kind of, it becomes a vicious circle, you know, and you sort of spiral down into yourself. And I talk about two periods in history. One is after the invention of the printing press. And we have to go back that far, really, to understand the kind of technological disruption that we're seeing around us today with the internet. And that was in the 1440s. And then, of course, the the Reformation that followed. But in that period, people, you know, started to look down at their Bibles and their primers and prayer books. And it was particularly marked in the towns and cities where the books were published, and particularly marked amongst the professions, I should say, the lawyers, the merchants, and everyone else. And you didn't see it so much out in the in the country. You know, there was this kind of bifurcation in, in society, to forking of, of society. Um, you also got this kind of solemnity starting to emerge, and uh, kind of it must have felt like the, the the end of days or the last of days to anyone living in about fifteen hundred, because the, not only did the you know the printing presses enable the publication of the Bible in many languages, but it also enabled the publication of you know code books for spotting and trying witches, enabled the publication of sort of tales of monstrous births and wondrous signs, you know, tales of the apocalypse, basically. And uh, this would have made people extremely anxious, worried, you know, and and turn in on themselves. And a new solemnity started to emerge, you know, and 
f- fake news is nothing new when you when you think about this and the sorts of things that were being published at the time causing thing you know all sorts of all sorts of problems around that time and so in that time by the way i look at art in the period and how it changed because you know i'm looking at creative work in advertising today and looking at how that's changed and there are lots of you know very uh, important echoes in the, the art of the time then and and the advertising and culture today the other period i look at is late the late 19th century early 20th century and if there was a reformation of the word in in the 15th and 16th centuries there's this kind of reformation of the matter where ma- where matter you know the business of making things, industry, became the thing, and science became the thing. And, you know, in this period with increased urban expansion, people moving to the towns and cities, there was a loss of a sense of, you know, commun- that community was being lost. And there was also a rise in mental illness and anxiety. And uh, what's schizophrenia, of course, exploded at this time. And, you know, you kind of see it in the art of the time, this fragmentation of attention, the breaking things down into smaller parts in cubism and everything else. And you see this sort of um, this sort of fragmentation of attention, this flickering, you know, of, of attention from one thing to the other, and a profound sense of just disorientation, really. And in this period, you can see things change markedly in the art too. And one of the things I do is look at those two periods and say, well, one of the things you see is the stare. And the stare starts to emerge in, you know, I mean, in, in 1500, people, mirrors were becoming widely available. So people were looking at themselves. Artists were able to paint themselves for the first time, a bit like the modern day selfie, I suppose, the mirror. And, uh, you know, the, so you see it in Dürer's work, you see it if you go to the National Gallery in London, you go to room 12, you look around. A lot of the paintings are full of stasis, it's sort of, you know, just people sitting or standing, uh, staring at you. And you get it in avant-garde art as well, the self-portraits of the avant-garde. Lots of people staring at you, uh, it, you know, quite disconcerting. And the stare, you know, is actually a sign of left brain kind of dominance, really. I mean, it's a desire to control, going back to that notion of attention we were talking about earlier. It's that the hunter controlling its prey, you know, fixing on it, grasping it, seeking to reduce it, penetrate it in some way. But it's also a kind of sign of the, the prey itself, the terrified helplessness locked in that in that moment, you know, staring at its aggressor. And so the, the stare starts to come forth and by the way it's also a feature of uh, schizophrenia uh, in the early stages of the tremor the, the stimmung the mood that people have at the start of it so it's it's associated with this sort of left brain rigidity so the stare starts to appear and the stare is uh, you know what i show is that stare is in advertising and in culture today you know the, the very frontal this facial frontality the the look that you know, the sort of stare that coerces is replacing the look that caresses. If you look at ex- spontaneous expression in the face in advertising, this has declined in the last 5, 10, 15 years uh, alongside this rise in the stare. And the stare, you know, shows that things aren't well in culture. It's a sign of uh, detachment. It's a sign of uh, 
loss of a loss of vitality, of course, but also this adversarial stance, the desire to shock and mock, and this flight to fantasy, which I think you can see in all sorts of you know film genres and everything. The shock and the horror film, you know, has increased in recent years. Absolutely, and you know, there's a there's a lot of things in that that I want to break apart a little bit. One one of them, I'm going to start with the idea of these mechanical moments in these historical references that you use. You know, you have the the creating of the press. Um, then we're we're talking about a later 19th century, 20th century, this um, extreme turn to industrializ- industrialization, which comes with a lot of, you know, mechanical thinking as it pertains to managing our time. You know, workers are are no longer artisans and craftsmen as much as they are put into more of a factory industrial age. Specialized roles. Model, yeah. Specialized yeah. roles, yeah. right? So, you know, are we confronting this, this notion of mechanized literal realities even today, you know, as we try to get more productive, right? We try to get more specialized. Is there a through line in, in this thinking that you're seeing? Yes, yes. I mean, it's very, if you think about today's world, all the fast growing, you know, companies, of course, are technology companies, largely speaking. And, you know, I say in the book, Sir Isaiah Berlin said that, you know, at certain times in history, a subject grasps the world's attention, you know, like chemistry or physics. Well, today it's computing and and, and digital technology. And that requires a certain kind of linear engineering kind of thinking, do this and that happens, you know. And those habits of thinking start to take root and uh, they start to affect everything that we do. So we start to look at everything in these terms, you know, as if as if we were, you know, even education, you know, we start to start to treat English literature, as I was talking to my wife yesterday, it, it, where it's taught in schools today, seems to be, look, we just don't read the book. We take one passage and we, t- we tear it apart. We analyze it to death. You know, that's sort of a scientific way of doing it. You know, let's reduce it. Let's look at the grammar. Let's look at the, you know, it, there's, there's some, but we lose what it's really all about. Um, so this narrow sort of um, cause and effect, linear kind of thinking, uh, a transactional kind of thinking. Um, starts to take hold. And of course, many of the apps available today are precisely that, a sort of transactional way of, of, of looking at the world and interacting with it. Even those that are about people and relationships, you know, seem quite, to me, quite transactional and promotes that kind of thinking more associated with the left brain. And, you know, it's, I, I love that you started to go there because I, I wrote down here you know, in the same way we talked about attention versus specialization and, and how those relate to one another, I, I jotted down attention versus connection, right? That I think the, the early part of, of the internet, I'm old enough to kind of remember <laughs> getting an AOL disc in, in the mail and, wow. you know, logging yeah. on with a modem and yeah. all that kind yeah. of stuff. There was a, a promise made, I think, in that very early cyber culture around connection that this offered you an opportunity to connect to people wherever they might be and 
even ironically around a lot of anonymity. Like I always joke around that like we always have these secret code names using the early internet. Now just everything's out there, right? Yeah, like yeah, we yeah. don't care about code names anymore. It's just like your As name. You should. <laughs> your, yeah, no, your address, like everything. Yeah. But it that is different. We're we're being, I think, promised connection still, but being offered really attention, right? Like a lot of people are really just seeking attention. Yeah. Not really connection. It's, it's funny, I was just reading a book, um, quite a, an interesting book by Johan Hari called Stolen Focus. I don't know if you've come across it. But anyway, he, he talks he talks a lot about, you know, why we can't pay attention anymore to things. It's quite just very easy to read and quite enjoyable to read. And he talks about, um, you know, early psychological experiments in the States. You know, you, you, they found out quite early on that if you get, take a pigeon's random movements in a in a cage you know the move of a, of a wing and you feed it when it makes this movement it soon learns soon learns to to raise its wing you know to get another piece of grain and that's kind of what's been happening to us he makes the point is that we've been trained to get a like or to get a whatever it is you know we raise our wing um and 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 that's these algorithms have been decide, designed to, to hold our attention, to capture our attention, to keep, keep you know, that goal-focused attention. And it becomes something of, a, of an addiction in a way. And that, you know, if you think about the way we interact with our mobile phones and devices, you know, it, it's something pretty close, bordering to, on that, really. And you you know, you can't bear to be without it. You feel a bit panicky if you if, if it's gone. You know, you don't know where it is. What am I? What am I going to do? We've kind of. It feels like it's a part of us, and that's a, not a good place to be. I don't think. And it it it's sort of causing this fragmentation of attention. I think many people know this, and you know, it's just like addicts, right? Like addicts know they're addicted, right? Like they're not at a loss as to what their problem is, right? Like if you like heroin, you're well aware of the fact that you like heroin, um, and, but you can't get away from, from heroin. And I think at the same token, many of us feel that we are addicted to these, to these tools and these devices and their implications, but also similarly as heroin, find it very hard to divorce ourselves. That's right. It. Well, funny enough, I think I, I mentioned this in the book, I think I'm right in saying this that the um, that heroin addicts, if you stimulate parts of their right hemisphere, it helps get over the addiction. So that there's a you know there is there's an association between addiction and left hemisphere dominance, and certainly dopamine, which is this kind of hormone which which gives us this this sense of pleasure when we follow a goal or you know kind of seeking of reward and then getting of that reward. That that is the left hemisphere is more sensitive to dopamine than than the right hemisphere. So, you know, there is this sort of connection between addiction, left hemisphere dominance, goal orientation. You know, this narrow kind of focus. And you know, I, I also jotted down here when I was looking at the stories and examples. So this this was actually in my notes prior to the conversation, um, knowing that we would get to some of the examples in in the book and tracing how this has manifested itself from, you said, the early 1400s through artwork, and we're dealing with creative industries, right? Like, is is this story a primarily European slash Western story? And the reason why I ask that is that, you know, at the time that all these things are happening, 
that are highlighted in, in this book and, and many others, there are other things also happening, right? In the same way that we, we face that today, right? There is no, there are some dominant trends through Western culture, but other cultures are dealing with this stuff in, in different ways. Is there something to be learned in those other stories that, that we can use now <laughs> to, to make yes. something yes. out of this better? Yes. Um, well, I, I, I hope so. Um, I mean, look, I, I focus on I mean, the examples I give are largely from Western culture um, and some, I mean, it is a, it's a, it's the culture I know best, you know, I mean, frankly. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And there's a lot to be learned, I think, from the more holistic way of thinking that you tend to find associated with Eastern cultures. You know, if you look at Japanese or perhaps a Chinese prints, you find, you know, that, that you tend, it's not so, you know, it's large landscapes, you imagine, with small people in them. There's a sense of the whole rather than, you know, really close up detail. And whether that's changing in the modern world, I don't know. Could be. But, you know, there are things to be said for for, for that. And, um, of course, a lot of the, the the religions of, you know, Buddhism and so on, you know, uh, I think have a lot of these sort of dualities in them. But yeah, I, I mean, look, I think there, are, I think of course there are things we can we can learn, and uh, you know, it's people often ask, you know, how do how how in the past have we got back to a more balanced way of looking at things? And the answer is not an easy one. You know, if you look you look back at the the, the problems of ref, that the Reformation brought in, and some and of course that some reforms were needed. You know, it took 170 years to get to, to anything like a normal pragmatism, you know, again. But, you know, we're moving a lot faster today uh, than we were and probably 10 times faster maybe than we were back then. So maybe it's maybe it's only maybe it's maybe it's not that long. Who knows? But, you know, I, I sort of sense that you, you kind of feel that the, the, the world needs to needs needs to get over this somehow and and it's difficult to know quite how it will do it some sort of uh, i hope it's i hope it's positive and a peaceful one absolutely and you know i think you you mentioned and brought up a point that's that's very critical to this which is the the incredible rate at which change is happening at a faster rate mm. particularly in the way in which i think advertising and marketing is is sort of dealing with with these changes but do you look out no pun intended <laughs> at the at the industry and feel that it is ahead of these changes or trying to play catch up to these changes a very good question i think it's i think it's sort of on advertising reflects you know the culture around it and draws on it and i think it's you know in in tune with the culture around perhaps at the at the sharp end you know so it probably is slightly further ahead but yeah you're right f f speed the speed of change is is dizzying and unfortunately we can't cope as humans with massive change very fast and when you get it it's disorientating people tend to detach from culture and what's going on around they become tribal and you also get this um you know, when when detachment occurs, 
and this loss of vitality, people look for ideology and ideology, society becomes vulnerable to ideology and that, you know, that way spells real trouble. So, yeah, I think there's a, there's, that's what I'm most worried about is the sense of detachment, I think, that people will feel in a world that just doesn't really seem to reflect them anymore uh, or, you know, that things are happening so fast that it's kind of dizzying disorientating we lose all bearing and what's um, a sense of what what holds us together data comes up a lot in in the book and what i what i really loved is your approach has a lot of analytics in it but it's so this is a testament to your you and your team but it it's not presented in an overwhelming way <laughs> so <laughs> kudos to those who pick up oh, the book thank and you. engage with it because i think there's a lot of really great information because as I as I was going through it and I was even remarking this this morning I was like damn there's just so much good shit in here right <laughs> and it's like you want to just keep like like going through it like I, I really did did find a, a lot of really really interesting and cool studies that were done and and highlighted and so my first question to that is is this only a data problem right because a preponderance of data that seems to be leading the narrow part of that focus and the way in which I've I've captured it, right, is that as we're getting and pulling in more information, we're allowed now to target audiences more directly, right? So I know that this person doesn't want, just want furniture, they want a sofa and they want it to be navy. So the ads are going to be like navy sofas, right? <laughs> until they go, until they go crazy, right? Even though I might be open to like a cream, right? Or some, you know, whatever. And so I'm curious about, is it a data issue, but then is data relative in the sense that we've always had numbers, which we've primarily now called just data? We have, but maybe not in the same quantity that we do now. And of course, all of that that you've just described, narrow targeting, the sort of more transactional relationship with a potential customer, that's how the left brain sees the world. Um, this 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 sort of directness, but of course um, that's that is to sell advertising short because advertising really works best, you know, and and uh, when it connects with lots of people and gives you that sort of reach, you know, that uh, but but on a on a scale that you can't, you know, that's very difficult to achieve via some plat some modern platforms. So I think you you know yeah you, you, data is also gives us a sense of certainty and and safety and the more we have the more risk averse I think we become and then you know you can't and then it's you know well, how do I create something that I'm going to get through you know that people are going to agree to 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 doing and that's where by the way you know kind of our testing at system one comes in we test for emotional response and trying to you know, give people confidence in the kind of work that will connect with public audiences. Um, so that's, that's uh, you're right, you know, there is this sense of uh, that everything is, is reduced to, um, to what can be measured, you know, and um, we, are, we are creating a world that's all about measurement. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, I remember that there's that saying, isn't there, we're spending all our time counting 
the pigs and no time fattening them up. Yeah. Um, no, that's, um, uh, it's that sort of <laughs> that sort of uh, mentality. And you know, how do we how do we actually create something that's going to be sort of help people to flourish and, and uh, as, grow? As a as a bacon lover, I love that. <laughs> I love that example. That's a good. <laughs> That's a good one. And it it made me think about something else, right? Which is you talk about emotions and, and connecting with audiences and building that advertising and, and branding that speaks to um, your emotions. And, you know, I'm going to use American examples here. Um, I know in the book, you use a lot of different examples of ads, but mine are going to be American. And what I often laugh and think about is that here in, in the in the U.S., these are not considered sexy companies, but like insurance companies and pharmaceutical companies have these really great ads. And what I mean by great ads, it's not that they're visually stunning because they actually are kind of the same, but they have like jingles you remember. They have longstanding characters. Like I'll just use like one, like Flow from Progressive, right? Like I feel like Flow from Progressive is someone that I've seen now for like fucking 10 years, right? <laughs> Maybe longer, right? Yeah. So it's awesome for that actress because you must have like fat residuals. But then it's a character that I know, even though I ain't really buying insurance like that, but it doesn't well, matter. Look at the guy, the Geico Gecko has been going yeah. for 20, you know, I mean, the, the Martin agency and, and, you know, what they've done is, I think it's remarkable and they continue to do interesting things, you know. Exactly. So, but my question to you is that I never see those types of ads or organizations win awards, right? I always see something that I've never heard of that did something in Beijing somewhere with a lot of lights. And then I'm like, I never seen that fucking commercial. But then these other commercials, I'm like, I know the general, right? Like I know all these pharmaceutical yeah. jingles, the names, all of them. <laughs> I know. I know. I mean, we, we've, we, we don't seem to prize any of those things, literally prize any of those things anymore. You know, the things that actually connect with our memory structures, you know, the, the right hemisphere, you know, characters with with uh, voices, you know, emphasis. You know, I talk in the book a lot about Chuck Jones's characters and, and his cartoons. You know, we learn a lot from that. The, the uniqueness of a character, which, you know, expresses itself in the eyes and mouth and the hands, you know, these are the features by which the soul of another makes itself known to us. You know, that is, that's what, that helps us to connect with things, audiences to, to pay attention, to watch. So these these characters, music so important. I talk about color. I talk about humor an, an awful lot. Humor's been it's gone out of fashion, as you say. You know, then things aren't being awarded that are you know that use humor as a, as a as a creative strategy so much these days. You know, uh, this this solemnity has uh, has taken hold, and uh, you saw it in the in the in, the, in fifteen hundred as well. But you know that that's what we prize as an industry, not all of us, because a lot of people still really want to do a lot of that work. But what the, the, the creative awards tend to prize is not the same sort of thing. I, I don't believe as the sort of work that connects with broad reach kind of populations. And uh, I don't know how this has happened, but um, what, what wins now doesn't, isn't the sort of stuff that won, you know, would have won 20, 30 years ago. And, and like, what is this 
like kind of telling us? Because at the time that we're recording this, though it will be released a, a few weeks from now, we just had the Super Bowl here in the mm. United States. And I didn't watch the Super Bowl because fuck the NFL. And um, <laughs> but beyond that, this is obviously a big event for advertisers here in the United States. Mm -hmm. They spend a lot of their marketing budget on ads during the Super Bowl. And from what I have read, because like I said, I didn't watch the game, you know, cryptocurrency was all over the Yes, they were they were, all over was, the, the yeah. web and are all over the the broadcast. And you know, Coinbase did a, a ad that was just a um uh code, yeah, I guess go to Coinbase or whatever. And and so I I don't know if you saw the ads or read about the I've, ads. I've seen some of them. In fact, we've tested all of them at System One if you wanted to know how they perform emotionally. And I know that some of those didn't do at all well, but it was the ones that sort of had human interaction. That did well. That, 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 that connect with people, yeah. And so th this was the question that I had, particularly about the Coinbase ad, because it was, like I said, just the QR code, right? So I've heard. And then I, I saw correspondingly there was like, oh, the Coinbase it crashed when people try to go to the to the QR code and all this kind of stuff. And so I'm I'm sure like in their heads and whatever agency did this, they're like, this is a success, right? Like people crashed the the app and all this kind of stuff. But I'm still looking at that. And again, full disclosure, I think 99.9 .9 of all that shit is trash, right? So I am not a metaverse crypto person. So I'm going to offer that to listeners so they know I'm coming at the bias, <laughs> right? But I, I'm, so my question to you is that, is that which I know will be perceived as success, truly success to the point of world that we are talking about in this conversation? Well, it's working a very different way, isn't it? Look, it's getting people to move directly to a, to a thing. You know, the QR code is that. It, it's working a very different way from the sort of advertising that, um, sticks in people's minds, in their memories, that lasts a long time, that promotes one brand over another in people's in people's uh, memories, you know. And so next time they're going to buy something in that category or sector, you know, that, that brand will leap to the top of their consideration list. You know, salience is from the Latin salire, to leap, um, is to jump at the top you know, if you're above anything else. And that's that's how great brand building advertising works. It's, to show a QR code is something completely different. And it's it's speaking to that directness again, which is, you know, when, when you get these new technologies, and I would probably class a QR code, it's not that new, but newish kind of way of doing things. You know, as Sir John Hegarty says, you know, you kind of creative people step back a little bit and watch and see, well, how do we use this tool? And it takes them a while to get to work out how to use things. And I think we're probably still in that phase, but we're getting to getting to work out how to use things now. And, you know, I want to, I'm, I'm keeping an eye on the time and I want to get to the, the final two segments of the show. But even though I, I rarely want to, I, I hate to give people like the, are you optimistic or are you pessimistic argument? Because I think it's a pretty stupid question. But I do want to give you an opportunity as someone who has studied this and and works in it on a daily basis, you know, as a betting person, you know, we do you think there's enough people paying attention to look out to reverse the tide that we're seeing right now? 
Well, I would like to think so, and I would, I would like to think they, you know, that they don't disagree too much with what I say. You know, I think you have to be optimistic. You have to be, um, you have to have hope. Hope is a virtue. <laughs> it's a good thing to have. And you know, you you have to. If you look back at history, you know, there are these sort of cycles, and you you end up, you know, where humanity, I hope, will will um, come good and uh, will be all right. But um, we are at a, at a at a worrying time in many respects, and uh, you know, I think we've we've just we we have to look out for each other, you know. Absolutely, that's just, do no harm and and look out for one another. We yeah. need deep, deep, deep compassion in 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 all of our work and all of yeah. our world. And I'm I'm hoping that the creatives that are out there will put more humor and emotion and, and laughter in their work. I think we we need more of that if we can. Yeah, I mean, as a time, of, as I say, as I finish the book, you know, in a time full full of you know detachment and fear and anxiety, what could be more wonderful than the kind of work that connects with people through humor, human connection, you know, Absolutely. Uh, color, wit, charm, all of those things. Yeah, we need more Chuck Jones voices, right? <laughs> we probably do. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. So I want to jump into Off the Dome and then the drop, even though we've given people a lot of drops, I think, in the course of this conversation. Yeah. So Off the Dome are just some rapid fire questions. Okay. And, you know, you've studied this stuff for a long time. Do you have a a favorite ad, whether it's from something oh, you remember wow. in your childhood or, or something that you studied that, that you would highlight as like, wow, I, that ad really touched me. <laughs> Goodness me. Uh, there are so, well, look, there are, there are so many. Um, you can give more than one. I'll give you even two. Yeah. Well, look, I mean, the, you know, I, I talk about two Heineken ads in, in both books. Um, one was the Wordsworth ad where the, you know, William Wordsworth is trying to, trying to pen his, his, his famous poem about daffodils and uh he can't he can't think just you know i wandered i wandered around a bit on my own no no it's not that what is it you know and he goes, goes through it finally gets it because he's drunk his heineken i think that's that's a rather lovely um ad and actually it came from a competition from the general public that they submitted it and anyway but i also talk about the uh levi's ad uh by john hegarty bbh where Nick Kamen, you know, goes into the laundry and takes his jeans off, um, puts them into the into the um, into the into the washing machine, and and I, I I think it's great for a number of reasons. It's use of music, the way that the eyes are used, the way that they command the stage, that they create this sort of relationship between the characters by the way that they look at each other. You know, there's so much to learn from that piece, the way it draws us into the laundrette, you know, we follow him in, you know, there's movement, there's so much in there that I think that's, that's a, a very good, it's an old example, but it's a, it's a very good one. An oldie, but a goodie. There's nothing wrong with yeah. that. Yeah. In looking back at, you know, maybe adolescence or, or early adulthood, if you weren't doing what you're currently doing in advertising, what would have been your, your dream job? Wow. Uh, do you know, I don't, I, that's a very difficult one to answer. I feel very lucky to have sort of ploughed this, this, this furrow to find something that I hugely enjoy and you know passionate about. But um, possibly something to do with art, or uh, maybe even painting. I do paint, but uh, it could have been music too, because I, you know, I, I love music. But but I think I was never quite good enough at, at playing it. But I am 
I do play, but well, piano. But. I say I'm I'm a great listener. <laughs> <laughs> I've never never played a thing in my life, but I'm an yeah, awesome no, I'm better listener. At listening than I am playing. But but yes, that's right. Um, gosh, that's a really difficult question. But let's say I'd like to have been an architect. I don't think I, I don't know if I'd have done it, but I uh, could have done it. But I think something to do with creating things, designing things, um, shaping things, um, leaving something of yourself in the world, you know, some sort of legacy for, for when you've gone, I think is something that I feel quite strongly about. No, that's awesome. It's interesting that um, all the things led toward like the more artistic, creative stuff. And it, and it comes across in the book, by the way, like I could tell you're a, a fan of these things, right? Which is what I think what makes it so good to read. And and so the the final off the dome question is kind of connected but not loosely connected. Like if you can acquire like one skill instantly, what would that skill? You mean me personally or or that I think everyone would benefit from? No, you. Like what skill? Um what skill? I think it would be the skill of composition, composition and music. And not just you know the composition, but the 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 joy of getting there with other people. I've been watching recently the Beatles Get Back documentary, and it is just remarkable. I think everyone working in anything to do with any business that has anything to do with marketing or advertising should watch that whatever it is eight hours of the show because. You learn so much about what's important when it comes to creating something new. For large periods of it, it looks like they're just messing about. You know, they're just playing other people's songs. They're just doing silly voices. You know, that's so important in the business of creating something because you have to mess about. You have to play around a bit with other people to to get to get to something new and brilliant and memorable and unique and just the sort of uh, the collaborative nature of it. And, uh, you know, when they bring in Billy Preston, you know, the fantastic keyboard player, everything sort of elevates to another level. I mean, the whole thing is just wonderful to watch. And how thing, how the songs come about, you know, just the sort of strumming around on a guitar, suddenly you've got something and then everyone joins in and they build off each other. That positive energy that comes from it um yeah i've i've um get back has been one of my drops from a from a previous episode has it i'm a i'm a huge beatles fan i i love watching that and it's for all the reasons that you just described and um it's crazy <laughs> when you talk about like billy preston when he comes in I, I i'm paraphrasing this but it's like he comes in the studio just kind of fucking around and he's talking he's like oh i'll i'll try to like you all guys start and i'll just try to come in and i'm like dude what <laughs> he just i mean he just takes it to another level doesn't another he i mean level. The, 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 uh, totally new dimension opens up yeah you know and john lennon looks to him and said you're in the band you know it's kind of amazing moment. Yeah. coming in cold you know yeah Talking about, yeah i just yeah. stopped by and oh you got yeah. a keyboard Let hey me. billy come <laughs> sit down it's, uh, it's amazing Absolutely it's a wonderful incredible. wonderful and also you you, you feel like you know them at the end of it don't you spend so much time with them that you really feel like you kind of got to know them all yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's, amazing it's a lovely thing. lovely doc so that's a yeah. perfect segue to the drop right like we're, we're recommending things for our our listeners and you know my drop is keyed up so i'll go first we mentioned leonard Schlein in the course of the conversation 
So my drop would be, he's written several books, but I want to highlight Art and Physics and The Alphabet versus The Goddess, because I think they're the two that I refer to most in, in my work, and they become constant references to me. And I think they're the two that, that actually align very much with the nature of this conversation and your work. So my drop is Leonard Schlein, Art and Physics, and The Alphabet versus The Goddess. So you're up. Oh, wow. Well, look, I've got, I'm, there are lots of things I'm reading and watching at the moment, and it's very difficult to pick one. I mean, the, the, I have to get back probably would have you been can give us one, two. one of them. You can give us two. It's okay. <laughs> uh, well, I'm reading the matter, the matter with things, which is uh, Ian McGilchrist's next book, which is enormous and totally fascinating. So I think that that would that certainly deserves a, a mention. And um, you know, I think uh, there are other things that I, there are other books that I'm I'm actually looking back at a lot of what the great pioneers of advertising in the 20th century thought about advertising, how they thought it works, the different ways in which they thought it works. And uh, one, so one of the many books I'm looking at is is by Steve Harrison, and it's the changing, and it's all about um, uh, Howard Gossage, the great uh, Howard Gossage, changing the world is the only fit work for a grown man, and this is um, biography of Howard Gossage, which I think is uh, very interesting, and and actually tells you a lot about how you do interactive advertising, you know, 50, 60 years before it before. We had interactive advertising. How do you drop an idea, get people to react, and then react to that reaction? You know, how do you how do you build a campaign in that way? Which I think is very interesting. That's awesome. Those are those are two really good drops. And like I said, the show is actually sprinkled with drops this time around. And there's, <laughs> and I, I think if you if you really engage with the book, it will lead you to looking up other work. You know, it's it's well referenced. I think it's a it's a book that you can take into your bookstore, you can take it into your museums, you can take it into your galleries. There's a lot of interesting places where you can discover more work. So Orlando, I wanna I wanna thank you A for coming back on the deep dive with me. Thank you for for, for creating Lookout and, and for spending this time. It was as always a great conversation. Thanks so much. You can listen to The Deep Dive via Apple Podcasts and our website, thedeepdivepod.com. Download, subscribe, listen, and share. If you like what you're hearing and enjoy what me and the team are putting together, then leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. You can follow me on Twitter via at FarFlungPhil. To all my listeners, wherever you are in the world, I thank you. See you on the other side.